You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Good to have you here. If you recall our business model episode, we've been going through a veritable gauntlet of information. The one that stuck out to me the most was free enterprise, because I think a bunch of people got together and tried to come up with the most palatable name for the model. I mean, it's good, but if I think of something better, I'll let you know. Anyways, the one that should have stuck out the most and is now the impetus for this episode is direct to consumer. As entrepreneurs and sellers, this model is one we need to know more about, and that's what we're here to do today. As always, the ideal place to start is what DTC is. According to RetailSolutions.io, direct-to-consumer allows manufacturers and brands to bypass or cut out retail channels of wholesale and retail, opting instead to sell directly to customers. Let's get a few definitions in to round this out. Fool.com makes the following point. The traditional supply chain includes a supplier, manufacturer, wholesaler, distributor, and retailer. With these many components, within each one includes time spent negotiating, which holds up releasing a product and acquiring feedback from customers. Why this is happening is fairly obvious, even if you're just taking the perspective of a customer. But let's point to some data anyways. According again to Fool.com, a number of once mighty business empires have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Blockbuster, Borders, Forever 21, Sears, and Toys R Us. If they're not down and out, you can be darn sure they're closing down locations. A global lockdown isn't helping things either. In the year 2013, there was less than a 2,000 point difference between openings and closings, but in 2018, there was a staggering difference of more than 5,000 closings over openings. The origin of this model points back to the dot-com bubble, we mentioned here and there on the show. Prior to that, one brand would likely dominate its respective market. According to a Harvard Business Review, or HBR.com, between 1923 and 1983, the dominant brand would likely remain as such, Kodak for cameras or Gillette for razors. Once entrepreneurs like yourself got their hands on the tool set provided by the internet, new companies would rise. Among them, we have Warby Parker for eyeglasses, Everlane for clothing, and Casper for mattresses. The main defining characteristics were borrowed supply chains, which I have to admit, I'm having some trouble locking down a definition on this, web-only retail, direct distribution, social media marketing, and a brand identity that's a bit generic to be frank. It's referred to as blanding. Prior to the internet transfusion, DTC has roots in certain industries such as farming. The case here was people wanted to get food and could only travel via horse. They had to make do with the proximity they had available to them. And that's some of it. Another point to mention, if you recall from our dropshipping episode, there was also purchasing by mail. Fundera.com makes a specific case about the appeal of DTC to millennials. And without reading the rest, I agreed. Okay, let's read the rest. Born between 1981 and 1996, millennial values are convenience, check, low cost, check, authenticity, check, and a seamless shopping experience. Check. This is all up DTC's alley. Millennials make half their purchases online and 70% take into consideration what the company values, compared to 52% of US adults. 
There's a small, probably unintentional jab there calling one group of millennials and the other as adults, but I respect the underlying humor, regardless of intent. One company example they cite is Casper Mattress, which as of August 17th, 2020, is valued at $1.1 billion. Part of their success formula is what Fendera.com refers to as social responsibility. Along with customer satisfaction, they offer 100-night trial risk-free and recycle or donate unwanted products. Compared to Generation Y shoppers, who tend to prefer affordability above all else, a trade-off that in a traditional model would result in an inferior product by the time it hits shelves. Direct-to-customer takes that problem out of the equation. Here are the eight characteristics Fool.com uses to illustrate the advantages of companies that use this model. Number one, the industry they want in has a low barrier to entry. Number two, parts of the operation can be rented at least as necessary. Number three, are more passionate about their customers owing to the more direct relationship. Compare that to being a brand that sells through another store. The store gets all the customer enthusiasm. Number four, they have experience in understanding and utilizing first-party data. Also, I'm not against using the word utilize. It means to use with efficiency and practicality. I know there's the irony to the way I used use, so let's just move on. I shouldn't have brought it up. Number five, they cut out the middleman. Number six, they know just how important it is to communicate with customers directly and often deploy cutting-edge CRM software. Number seven, they are more flexible with their prices than with legacy retailers. This is owing to the amount of cost involved in running one. Overhead, staff, insurance, rent, spillage, wildfires. And number eight, they gravitate more towards digital marketing, which is in line with the forward thinking of the business model. Fool.com focuses on the five key benefits in switching to DTC. Number one, as we said, cutting out the middleman. The difference in profitability is as follows. If I sell a product to a wholesaler, they have to mark it up, meaning by the time the customer has purchased it, the price has doubled twice. Once for you to sell to the wholesaler and mark up of your cost so that you're profitable, and then it's marked up again by the wholesaler so that it can be profitable. Now me, I do have a soft spot for brick and mortar, and I'd hate to see it go away. That brings about a question about what role does a brick and mortar store play in a new age where I can do all my shopping from home? I can only ask and try to figure it out. So let me say as someone who's done his time, the good part of face-to-face is it better ingratiates the brand in the consumer's mind. Listening to someone talk passionately about the product, providing on-the-fly advice is valuable in retaining long-term consumer loyalty. So rather than rely on the physical locations to make or break a company's bottom line, A company already doing well online can use a physical space as an investment, like a permanent advertisement. My online luxury job had this in mind. We couldn't execute on it, but the idea was employees would be working in the store, which was actually more of a lounge, so customers could come by to safely and securely pick up their online orders and have themselves a cup of coffee. I could change my mind on this in the future, but any store I set up online, I would love to imagine how it could be made physical. I just wanted to get that in there because I can't ignore the facts. Brick and mortar is not doing so well. But I, for one, have loads of positive memories of in-person experiences and am eager to see how it can be renewed for the future. The second point on the five-point chart is better customer connection. Since all the data flows to you directly, it's easier to analyze that data since you don't need to factor elements out of your control, like an ordinary salesperson on a bad day. Believe me, been there, been him. You also have the ability to market directly through follow-up emails and ask them directly about their preferences for making new products. Point number three is expanding Mindshare. And quickly, real quick, Mindshare is, according to Investopedia, a marketing term that describes the amount of consumer awareness, or popularity, 
surrounding a particular product, idea, or company. The issue is, in order to scale a brand in the then times, you had to go from local to regional, to national, and then international, gaining the trust of wholesalers along the way. Obviously, it's perfectly doable. And it might be good, depending on the product, to have stopgaps along the way so you have time to perfect your operation before scaling upwards. But it could cost you five to ten years in time to hit the same level you could hit in a matter of months with modern scaling. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been moving at quantum speed. A year now has a productivity potential of several years from the early 2000s, and more so the further back we go. If you go DTC, the time between formation and premiere is cut by more than half. Three quarters? Yeah, three quarters sounds right. Number four, to control your brand's story. Since someone has a sell on your behalf, a lot of your brand's well-being and perception is on the seller. To me, this does depend on the brand itself. I don't really care where I get Coca-Cola, and since they won't be opening any stores anytime soon, they probably don't care either. With DTC, you have full control of those four main marketing principles, product, place, price, and promotion. You have more flexibility with A-B testing. Maybe you can sell something for a higher margin, which would be harder to activate and understand what's going on since there are factors outside your control. Number five is be everywhere, all the time. Customers expect a little more direct interaction, and you can give it to them through customer service integrations and marketing. If you want to run a sale, you can fire it up without waiting on compliance from your wholesaler. All right, let's get some downsides in. Here's three from Fundera.com. Number one, supply chain issues can be difficult to coordinate with. They point to a case study of a beauty brand by the name of Glossier. According to that article from marketingweek.com, the president of the company, Henry Davis, was having difficulties keeping stock up to demand. His industry was competitive with a lot of big players well-established with a secure supply chain network. It got to the point where he had to write a letter to his customers to let them know they were having trouble keeping up with the supply. The customers were understanding, but it's not something that the business would endeavor to repeat. Point number two, conversions can be a challenge. In order to acquire some of that sweet, sweet goodwill, DTC brands expect to have to deploy a lot of free trials, like the one I mentioned earlier about Casper. Customers, skeptical of a new company, will try it out, but it hasn't been ingrained in their mind to commit. Point number three, it requires expertise in several areas. It's one thing to just make a product and convince wholesales to carry it. It's another to know how to acquire customers, sort out logistics, and the whole, there's a massive change in terms of what you have to insource and outsource. The next article that I especially encourage checking out is HPR.org's Reinventing the Direct-to-Consumer Business Model, which I've referenced earlier today. In it, they characterize the landscape has changed in a number of ways, one of them being advertising. As early adopters of social media didn't have to pay as much to advertise because of less competition and an unclear view of how valuable it actually was. They go on to say that in today's view, companies are facing some serious struggles. Casper Mattress's February IPO was 600000 less than its last private fundraising round. Brandless, and yes, it is a DTC company, laid off 90% of its employees. Glossier suspended its color cosmetics line play, and Outdoor Voices CEO Tyler Haney was forced to resign as, as they were burning $2 million monthly, taking in $40 million in sales. This is all happening now because of a ramped-up competitive market, making customer acquisition difficult and advertising expensive. Companies are now considering if it's worth selling their product through Amazon, thus completing the circle and becoming what they sought to replace. Markets, such as cookware, are loaded to the brim with options, such as equal parts, made-in, 
Misen, Great Jones, Caraway, and Our Place. You could say that there are too many cooks in the kitchen. I did, and I'm not going to take it back. Also, big legacy players have the infrastructure to set up their own DTC line as well. Investing is a different situation, too. They've had at least 10 years worth of data from DTC companies. The key takeaway here is that DTC is at the point where the model is not e-commerce innovative, but the tactics can be. It goes on to make the following observations. Number one, you need to have or be an omnichannel. There is a new wave of stores such as Bulletin and Neighborhood Goods who are physical locations and their job is to curate DTC brands on the company's behalf. Which is great news for me, by the way, just remembering what I was saying earlier about wanting to see brick and mortar make a re-emergence. That said, the success is not totally clear yet, but they noticed that customers were less likely to bring their products back for a return. Being able to interact with a product in person first before deciding reduced the rate significantly. Number two, differentiate through community. We established the ability to collect data from customers directly, but HBR suggests going further than that by also working with customers to develop products. And number three, expand margins through vertical integration. As a company scales, it could be difficult to maintain profitability as distribution channels expand and supply recedes. But if you were to shift from outsourcing manufacturing to going in-house, you'd have full control over supply. You can have even more control over supply if you actually opened up your own mine and harvested the resources yourself, but I'm not, that's not official advice. Number four, prepare for the voice revolution. Now that we have text internet down pat, signs like OK Google and Alexa are the first of a new shopping experience. The article overall has a pretty negative slant towards DTC, and while I'm no economist, I'm more optimistic about it than the article is. But you should get negative opinions on things as well as positive. So I have three tasks left to do today. I'm going to talk about how to start a DTC, how a company can transition into it, maybe not fully, but perhaps partially. And lastly, some DTC companies right now worth looking into. First, how to set this up. Shopify.ca outlines the six steps intended for a consumer packaged goods or fast-moving consumer goods business, aka FMCG or CPG, and therefore presumes a greater scale. So let's learn what we can, and then we'll focus on a guide closer to a small-scale startup, as I'm sure we'll get lessons for both. The six steps are goals, timeline, technology, partner, payments, and fulfillment. Number one, goals. What you got? Game or media impressions? Harvest customer data for remarketing or R&D? Build a sustainable business line that complements your brand. Whatever it is, identifying a goal is a good place to start no matter what. Number two, timeline. According to Shopify.ca, you should anticipate a deadline like a holiday or a major conference that attracts a lot of interested attention. As a backup, you want to also anticipate a secondary deadline just in case. This lets you work backwards from that point. For e-commerce and dropshipping especially, the brunt of your focus is more likely to be on the front end, meaning stuff like content delivery, and you only have so many SKUs to start. Part 3. Technology Naturally, I'll be recommending Debutify. But the main point I took away from this step is that a big company may be incentivized to work with an equally big platform. That's not inherently necessary. What's important is the technology being able to rapidly keep up with the changing consumer landscape. This next step clearly angles towards a larger company, but let's look at it carefully, which is partnership. A large company probably has a creative agency already, but chances are they don't know how to work with the tech platform selected as well. They may not be familiar with the e-commerce space. So a large company will use a platform implementation partner. Since it's a Shopify guide, 
They pointed to a successful five-week launch thanks to an agency partner, Guidance, who set up front-end and back-end development. Angling this towards a small operation, in a sense, you should still be considering each element you work with as a partner, whether it's Debutify, the supplier you're dropshipping from, assuming you're dropshipping, and anyone else you bring into the project. Number five is payment. For CPG slash FMCG, they expect the retailer to handle customer payments. Put simply, you need to make sure you have a credit card processor that can collect payments into your company's bank account. A platform like Shopify has a built-in processor. And whether you use one built-in or externally, Shopify recommends looking at approval rates, payout times, and ease of reconciliation. And number six, we have fulfillment. For large enterprises, the factors they recommend looking into are warehouse proximity, which could be of strategic value depending on where the customer base is. The second priority is packing, such as if a product needs to be refrigerated. Third are integrations. Whether you do it directly or your agency does it on your behalf, the warehouse has to be integrated into the e-commerce platform so the data flows smoothly. And lastly is price. The main element an CPG slash FMCG company needs to bear in mind is how those costs will scale as a business does. Info.voodorobotics.com also points to a number of challenges all across the company spectrum, specific for a business that's transitioning from a B2B to DTC. In the warehouse, pickers have to be more careful when selecting orders since it's specific to a customer. The product has to be presentable to the customer. And while they can't do anything about delivery, getting it packed safely is on them, which transitions into packaging. In B2B, you can ship products in pallets en masse. But when delivering specifically to customers, you also need an area for packing, as well as having to figure out what size of packages you need based on product variety. Next is quality assurance, where they have to make sure the package has the correct product, is labeled properly, and, you know, it's not broken. Compare this to heading to a Walmart and seeing a box on the shelf. Maybe it's not in the best shape, but eh. At least the store has a customer service department, and as well, you might even be able to hack a little something off. Next is shipping. Again, the major adjustment here is that you're sending a lot of small packages rather than large pallets or cases. Companies need to figure out what are the most cost-effective options for shipping, and if they should be relying on third-party delivering methods like UPS or DHL. Additionally, companies need to consider dimensions, weight, and how fast the box needs to get delivered, in case there's, I don't know, a parakeet inside. Then there's returns. When a product is returned to a Walmart, the onus is on Walmart to figure out what to do with it. Say the product is in poor condition, but not poor enough to refuse the return altogether, Walmart can mark it down and put it in a markdown section. There's more implied goodwill when you're receiving something from a, even if it's a return, when you're receiving something from another business. You don't get that as a default when dealing with customers. Moving along, you have personalization. One of the key benefits going direct is to give customers more customization in products. Customers can come to your website and check out different shirts, let's say. So because this is such a major component to fully benefiting from DTC, companies need to make sure their manufacturing process, in-house or partnership can handle this. Not just at all, but in a way that's feasible. With marketing, a company isn't relying on a wholesaler to put their product images on a commercial or catalog. But selling directly to the customer gives the company direct control over where to sell, be it Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For sales, a company is transitioning from selling to a seller to selling to a customer directly. In B2B, there's less of that need for a salesperson to be on brand. It's still professional, mind you, but you, you just don't need to put on the same face. 
The second aspect is in B2B, you can guide the seller on the other side through the sales process. But in DTC, yeah, DTC, sometimes I, I, I'm saying it so much, I'm starting to wonder if I've said it wrong at any point, probably. The customer needs to be able to sort it out on their own. Next is how it affects engineering. Already, they're receiving feedback from other parts of the company for continued product development and improvement, but now customer feedback enters the mix. Since otherwise, those customers would be just as likely to provide feedback to the store they bought the product from and are less likely or compelled to speak to the brand. By the way, in case it wasn't apparent, the point of the article was to illustrate how things change in every department. And I mean every department. Next is customer service. Not that I need to go over the benefits of this. The major standout is that now there has to be one. <laughs> Moving on, we have management. If there's one position with some of the most significant change, it's management. You're now in an operation with a mix of front-end and back-end. They now need to work as ambassadors between all the departments and make sure the messages are consistent. While a breakdown in communication can be troublesome within a company, more so when dealing with another business, it can be outright devastating when a communication breakdown occurs with customers involved because they're going to go public. Management's new job will be to make sure everyone's on the same page and a promise made to the customers should be made knowing it can be kept. Two other points the article makes, while not department-specific, are still important. One is that the customer service team needs to have more technical expertise. More than you might think. It's one thing to receive complaints and pass on ideas. It's another to know how to process purchases manually, how to do returns, product knowledge and instructions. What happens if something ends up being delivered to somebody in Quebec when it's supposed to go to somebody in Ontario? Well, one option would be to shut your website down completely. I know I got specific there, but I was really looking forward to that bracket. Anyways, the second point made is about social media. It will be necessary. And as such, the company will have to worry about negativity as well. We talked about some ways companies have handled it, like Wendy's from our branding episode. They address negativity by firing back. Whatever the strategy is, Voodoo Robotics' recommendation is to have them. You gotta anticipate known issues and have your responses ready to go. You can use a service like Google Alerts to be notified of messages in relation to your business, and you don't need to have it tagged either. One time, I made a rather snarky tweet about bus stops. I said, if you miss your stop, relax and call the next one. They're bus stops, not CIBC locations. I didn't tag CIBC in this, but the next day they contacted me and asked me if I needed a location in my area. Now, let's focus on starting from scratch. Obviously, there's plenty of takeaways already, but I want to make certain I'm providing insights for starting up. Here is a depository of instructions courtesy of coredna.com. You know what, at first when I saw that website, I thought it was like coredna.com. That's on me. Number one, identify an everyday item and make it affordable. The example they provide is Dollar Shave Club and Harry's Razors. Having seen that with Gillette's dominance on the market, a blade would average six US dollars. Whereas these two sell you the handles to varying degrees of quality, there's budget and then there's luxury, with the blades averaging $1.87 each. Over time, you save a lot more money. Number two, focus your product and marketing on customer pain points. Even if a customer is getting the best value, where are they sensing grief? The example they cite is Bonobos, a 2007 pants company. They discovered men don't enjoy going out to buy pants and furthermore, find it hard to like the ones they do. 
Their second discovery is European pants were too high-rise and American ones were too baggy. So, they made pants that found a middle ground between these two points. Number three, develop a subscription-based model. This is something I need to delve deeper into myself, but it's recommended for DTC. If customers can subscribe to something they need or want, it becomes one less thing they need to think about, and you save them time and money. I still subscribe to Quip, and have been for over a year. Once every three months, I get a refill in the mail, no muss, no fuss. Number four, keep options simple. DTC brands like Casper will focus their resources on a sole quality product, and one that pleases the majority of customers. It can't please everyone, but that's okay. Number five, take a content-first approach. The example of Glossier here is used to illustrate the passion came first. Her blog, Gloss, started in 2010. And once she hit about 15 million unique views, it seemed like a good time to start her company. Having a strong content-based front end is an organic way to interact with customers, but also to collect data. For instance, picture asking a loyal and passionate fan base, what would their ideal face wash be? 400 comments later, and you have organic market research. Number six, offer easy, no fee returns. This is when I'm gonna to have to hit a company on hard. There's a stylist from Digital Magica, who I had asked if the stylist would work on that desk lab monitor I ordered a few months ago. The sales agent says yes, so I order. It indeed does not work, well, on the monitor. It, it did work on my phone, so I ship it back. They should have offered to compensate me on shipping because they said it would work. Instead, I got nothing, and a net loss on top of it. I wouldn't recommend being like that. Number seven, make use of celebrity influencers. You might not have Kylie Jenner on your Rolodex, especially if you're using a Rolodex, but you are encouraged to use your network to see if you've got a connection to someone with more clout. Not more than Kylie Jenner, just, you know, any clout, really. Number eight, develop a customer incentive plan, such as refer 10 friends and get a free product. Number nine, create a viral video. Interesting insight on this one, because I remember seeing the Dollar Shave Club video of some time ago, and it's one of the most effective ads I can remember, specifically because I can remember it. And it's such a wacky ad that when I rewatch it now for this script, there's bits from it I forgot about. What I didn't know was that they had spent $10,000 promoting the ad on social media. So while 10K is a lot for advertising, reaching out to blogs and sites catering to your niche won't cost you anything to try. Number 10 is creating a virtualized experience. Rather involved for starting up, but I'll talk about it anyways. The idea here is to augment the consumer's home buying options by providing, say, a virtual reality app that lets customers try our products on at home, like a watch or a piece of jewelry. Number 11 is to use a micro-influencer. Another way to look at that is to imagine anyone you know or interact with could be an influencer in their own way. Because they'll have friends, they've got family, Number 12 continues on this line by asking customers to make content. So rather than request customers to provide feedback or reviews, which you can still do, you can ask them instead to make videos of them trying the product on or rubbing the product on their face. Depends on the product. Number 13 is aggressive SEO. This one would be costly for a startup. They point that Casper spent a lot in Google AdWords to make sure they hit the top. If you have the money for it, SEO is proven to be effective. Number 14 is to use infographics and memes on social media. I can safely say infographics are hard to ignore. While I might not end up being a customer, an infographic is a short and sweet way to educate somebody on a subject. The issue that I have is I would be skeptical of the information 
and would be happier knowing there are sources to back up the info that I can click on. Number 15, end-to-end -end customer experience. So you might have a plan for how to get customers' attention and funnel them into selling. But if you want to see your customer satisfaction rate go up, one example by coredna.com is Bonobos, who have a 24-hour response rate for emails. 90% of emails were rated great, and 90% of calls were responded to within 30 minutes. For starting up, that might be asking a lot out of an up-and-comer, so manage customer expectations like will respond within 48 hours. And focus on emails first, since they are usually the least time pressure. Once you're ready to use chat, or have your chat system in place, whether it's AI, people, or mix, customers tend to expect chat responses much quicker than email, but also appreciate the immediacy of chat much more. The article does have a couple more insights for you to check out, but I think there's plenty here to consider already. Finally, we've already explored a lot of businesses throughout this episode. But let me point to a few more just for good measure. And I do want to take a moment and commend Casper Mattress for their success. My girlfriend and I went to go visit a mall not too long ago, and it was the first time that I'd seen a Casper Mattress store. So while their presence is mainly online, or rather their sales are mainly online, I was pretty pleased to see that they would have a physical presence. And they are selling mattresses at the end of the day, so it is the kind of thing that you would want to test out in person if you could. The first company I'll talk about is Almina. I wanted to make sure I got one in that uses dropshipping. Oh, the article, by the way, is from Glossy.co, which I mentioned earlier. The owner, Angela Gang, sorry if I got that wrong, focused on a DTC model so she could find a balance between quality and affordability, and found that while it was effective, growth was difficult because acquiring customers for the website was costly for a small business. She was approached by W Concept, who found her on Instagram. They offered her a dropshipping-based partnership. Once things had gotten into place, she found business was expanding rapidly. Customers would order clothing by Almina Concept through W Concept, who were a global marketplace. Then Almina Concept would fulfill the order via dropshipping. Angela at one point had to contact her factory in Solid Korea to resupply certain products that were selling out quickly. The second one is Cards Against Humanity. A game I love to play, but I'm not great at winning. You'd think with my English level I'd do well in a game of words, but I assure you, depending on the crowd, it might not make a lick of difference. Cards Against Humanity sells on their website directly, but of course they're available in stores as well. The article from blog.hubspot.com points out that because the audience and the brand are so in sync, the brand can mess with the crowd and the crowd gets it. They did a Black Friday sale where they charged $5 for nothing and earned $71,000 as a result. The final one I want to talk about is The Fifth. Since you're listening to this, it's done numerically, 5th. And their strategy would be a little obvious if you adopted it pound for pound, but my gosh, is it smart. For the first two years of its operation, the store would be open five days a month, giving time to build anticipation as well as control supply and demand. As of 2017, you can shop whenever you want, but they had the story to fall back on. One major takeaway I picked up from this research is that if you consider how much product is purchased in stores, the relationship between those major brands and the stores that sell them is a B2B relationship. They need to convince the store to sell it rather than convince the buyer to buy it. Well, that was a lot. What about you? What was your takeaway from all this? If you want us to delve into a subject further, feel free to let us know. Podcast at TheBeautified.com You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, 
Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.